and comes with a surprise So I pull up to my TV set and order with a click I can eat there now and then, but every day will make me sick Yeah, every day will make me sick Yeah, every day will make me sick With Mick Mick Media They are wet, so they take out all the nutrients and fill our empty heads. Yeah, they fill our empty heads. Oh, they fill our empty heads with mix, mix, media. Through the masses, media, let them be cake. Media, through the masses, media, let them be cake. Let them be cake. Let them be cake. And the stations are owned by corporations And we eat their information Just like cows on a plantation All the papers and the stations Are owned by corporations And we eat their information Just like cows on a plantation Cows on a plantation They eat their information They eat their information Cows on a plantation Media by United Sheep. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders and progressive and radical activism. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can find out more about Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. You'll find all the back episodes there, and you'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, this episode is a piece published at The Guardian. That's theguardian.com. This is written by Jessica Crispin. The American media elite has learned nothing from 2016. It will only get worse. The world has gotten weird. So it is natural to turn to the news to explain to us what is going on. 
But what is going on in the pages of the newspapers and the studios of the 24-hour news networks is sometimes as confusing as the news they are reporting. We have someone on television comparing the supporters of the Jewish presidential candidate Bernie Sanders to Nazi brown shirts. We have MSNBC hosts comparing Bernie Sanders' Nevada win to the Nazi invasion of France. We have someone on television constructing elaborate fantasies about Bernie Sanders, walking him into Central Park and shooting him in the back of the head for having too much money. We have people on television who see the hand of Russian agents in every mishap. And we have so many women and men in newspapers who insist that being criticized for their work is a violation of their constitutional rights. Journalism was supposed to save us. They promised. After the election of Donald Trump, which the good gentlemen and ladies of journalism assisted in facilitating, much was made of the ability of the Fourth Estate to soften the blow, to shorten the reign of corruption, to protect the public from the madman in the White House. It hasn't really worked out that way, and the increasingly unhinged rhetoric of the opinion havers and the public faces of new networks does little to restore our faith. The media has come under fire for its role in helping President Trump make his way to the highest office in the land, for making too much of Hillary Clinton's email scandal, to giving Trump untold hours of free publicity by broadcasting his every word and deed, to fundamentally misunderstanding their own country and what the people who live between New York and Los Angeles might want or need. Yet, for the most part, the media did not take its failure to foresee or prevent the results of the 2016 election as a cue to pause, assess what it has been doing wrong, and realign itself and its mission in response to the hard lessons it has learned. Instead, the media rebranded like an oil company recently discovered to be dumping toxic sludge down the throats of sea turtles. It announced it would be the bulwark against Trump and all of his cronies, the last line of protection between us and fascism. Ta-da! It created a whole ad campaign around Trump's hatred for the press. If he hates us, that must mean we're good, right? Right? Like those companies, it never stopped its sludge dumping, just changed the name under which it committed its sea turtle murder. No one lost their job for assuring the country of the impossibility of Hillary Clinton losing the election. No pundits had to apologize for never once stepping inside a red state before pontificating about the state of things in Trump country. The New York Times relied on the same six swing voters to provide commentary whenever the paper of record decided it needed to prove it was in touch with the common people. Billionaires buying newspapers also became something of a trend, like fidget spinners or insulin rationing due to a lack of comprehensive health insurance. Either because these billionaires seek to make themselves look philanthropic, or because they want to control the coverage of their financial goings-on. Or both. Democracy dies in darkness, Mr. Bezos? Yeah, well... So do workers on your warehouse floors.
Yes, the media made a few cosmetic changes to prove they understood the diversity of thought across the nation. The New York Times, for example, decided it lacked the conservative voices that could explain the populist rightward tilt the electorate took. So the paper hired man of the people Brett Stevens, son of a corporate scion, graduate of the University of Chicago and the London School of Economics, as a columnist. You know, someone who could really give some insight into the kinds of opinions circulating at the Beloit, Kansas dinner at harvest time. Other publications followed suit, fawning over anyone who might have accidentally found themselves briefly living in a conservative state before their inevitable elevation to the elite university system. Like the Yale graduate Appalachia expert venture capitalist J.D. Vance, Despite the multitude of critics who say his theories about the white working class are naive at best. Journalism has become a well-gate-kept little bubble. If bubbles were created out of ignorance and contempt for what lay outside of them instead of just soap. And unlike soap bubbles so easily pricked and burst, the walls of the ideological bubbles of our professional class are nearly impenetrable. As local newspapers disappear due to the financial meddling of Facebook and venture capitalists, and as journalism becomes a cancer that requires advanced degrees rather than apprenticeships, it is harder and harder for anyone who does not come from an upper middle class background or elite education to find work and a voice in our media institutions. What gives you access to these realms is not a unique insight or empathetic perspective or access to overlooked populations, but instead credentials only attainable by wealth or privilege. Vance went to Yale, so whatever he says about Appalachia must be right, because his editor also probably went to Yale, and so did his editor's boss, and so on. The biases of the professional classes replicate themselves, and we find figures as horrified and baffled by the progressive left as they are by the reactionary right. Often, as with Chuck Todd and Chris Matthews, they can't even distinguish between the two groups. Anyone working as a collective must be essentially the same, even if one group is chanting white nationalist slogans and the other is asking for racial and economic justice. But who can tell the difference watching the demonstration as they do through the glass of their building on 8th Avenue? And next up is a piece published in Jacobin Magazine. That's jacobinmag.com. And this is written by Thomas Piketty. Let it be said at once, the treatment received by Bernie Sanders in the leading media in the United States and in Europe is unjust and dangerous. Everywhere on the main networks and the large daily papers, we read that Sanders is a, quote, extremist, and that only a, quote, centrist candidate like Biden could triumph over Trump. This biased and somewhat unscrupulous treatment is particularly regrettable when a closer when a closer examination of the facts 
actually suggests that only a full-scale reorientation of the type proposed by Sanders would eventually rid American democracy of the inegalitarian practices which undermine it and deal with the electoral disaffection of the working classes. Let's begin with the program to say emphatically, as Sanders does, that a public universal health insurance would enable the American population to be cared for more efficiently and more cheaply than the present private and extremely unequal system is not a, quote, extremist statement. It is, on the contrary, a declaration perfectly well documented by many research studies and international comparisons. In these difficult times, when everyone deplores the rise of, quote, fake news, it is right and proper for some candidates to rely on established facts and not resort to obscure language and complex tactics. Similarly, Sanders is right when he proposes large-scale public investment in favor of education and public universities. Historically, the prosperity of the United States has relied in the 20th century on the education, educational advance of the country over Europe in a degree of equality in this field, and definitely not on the sacralization of inequality and the unlimited accumulation of fortunes which Reagan wished to impose as an alternative model in the 1980s. The failure of this Reagan-style rupture is patent today, with the growth with the growth of national income per capita being halved and an unprecedented rise in inequality. Sanders simply proposed a return to the sources of the country's model for development, a very wide diffusion of education. Sanders also proposes a considerable rise in the level of the minimum wage, a policy in which the United States were, for a long time, the world leaders and to learn from the experiences in co-management and voting rights for employees on the boards of directors of firms implemented successfully in Germany and in Sweden for decades. Generally speaking, Sanders' proposals show him to be a pragmatic social democrat, endeavoring to make the most of the experiences available and in no way a, quote, radical. And when he chooses to go further than European social democracy, for example, with his proposal for a federal wealth tax rising to 8% per annum on multi-billionaires, this corresponds to the reality of the excessive concentration of wealth in the United States and the fiscal and administrative capacities of the American federal state, which has already been demonstrated historically. Now let's deal with the question of opinion polls. The problem of the repeated assertions that Biden would be better placed to beat Trump is that they have no objective factual basis. If we examine the existing data, such as those compiled by RealClearPolitics.com, it is clear in all the national opinion polls that Sanders would beat Trump with the same differential as Biden. These polls are, of course, premature, but they are just as much for Biden as for Sanders. In several key states, we find that Sanders would come out ahead of Trump, for example, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. If we analyze the surveys on the primaries which have just taken place, it appears clearly that Sanders mobilizes the working-class electorate more than Biden. It is true that the latter attracts a considerable share of the black vote 
and inheritance of the Obama-Biden ticket. But Sanders mobilizes the vast majority of the Latino vote and crushes Biden amongst 18 to 29 years age group, as he does the 30 to 44 years group. Above all, all the polls indicate that Sanders has the best scores amongst the underprivileged. Annual incomes below $50,000, no higher education qualification. Whereas Biden, on the contrary, has the best scores among, amongst the most privileged. Annual incomes above $100,000, higher education diploma. Whether it be white voters or those from minority backgrounds, independent of age. Now, it so happens that the highest potential for mobilization is among the most underprivileged social categories. Generally speaking, voter turnout has always been relatively low in the United States, just barely above 50%, whereas it has long been between 70 and 80% in France and in the United Kingdom, before falling recently. If we examine things in greater detail, we also find that on the other side of the Atlantic, there is a structurally lower participation amongst the poorest half of the voters, with a difference in the region of 15 to 20 percent with the richest half. To put it clearly, this electoral alienation of the American working classes is so long-standing that it will certainly not be reversed in one day. But what else can we do to deal with it than to undertake a far-reaching reorientation of the election program of the Democratic Party and to discuss these ideas openly in national campaigns. The cynical and unfortunately a very commonplace vision among the democratic elites that nothing can be done to mobilize further the working class vote is extremely dangerous. In the last resort, this cynicism weakens the legitimacy of the democratic electoral system itself. Next up, a piece published at InTheseTimes.com. This is written by Juan Caicedo and Sarah Lazar. Joe Biden's ascent into frontrunner status is often portrayed as an organic consequence of big-time endorsements in an untapped desire for a more centrist and electable candidate. But a survey by In These Times finds that CNN has portrayed Bernie Sanders more negatively than Biden, suggesting that media slant itself may play a role in Biden's rise. In the 24 hours following his massive win in Nevada, Sanders received 3.26 times the proportion of negative CNN coverage than Biden did following the latter's South Carolina win despite the two wins being by similar margins. Sanders received more coverage after his win than Biden did after his, 419 mentions for Sanders to Biden's 249. But a larger share of Sanders' mentions were negative and fewer positive than Biden's. The above 3.26 figure was arrived at by comparing negative coverage as a proportion of total coverage for both candidates. CNN is one of the most widely watched cable news networks on television, averaging about a million viewers during prime time. Given its down-the-middle reputation, CNN can be a useful proxy for broader media coverage. 
The 24-hour window following a primary is a critical time for setting a public narrative about which candidates are viable, have, quote, momentum, and seem presidential. Media coverage that drives up the negatives of a candidate can have a hand in harming their campaigns. Sanders won a blowout victory in Nevada, garnering 46.8% of the vote in a multi-candidate field, putting him well ahead of Biden's 20.2% support. Yet in the 24-hour period following his win, starting at midnight, CNN's coverage of Sanders was slightly more negative than positive. He received 32 positive mentions, 33 negative mentions, and 354 neutral mentions from CNN guests or hosts. In contrast, during the 24 hours following Biden's blowout win in South Carolina, bringing in 48.4% compared to Sanders' 19.9%, roughly the same result. The former vice president received much more fawning coverage from CNN, 19 positive mentions, only 6 negative mentions, and 224 neutral mentions. Sanders' negatives and positives were roughly equal, 33 versus 32 to each other, while Biden received more than three times more positive than negative mentions. This tally is likely an undercount of overall pro-Biden slant in the current media landscape, as it does not include the avalanche of positive coverage Biden received for the endorsements from Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, and Beto O'Rourke that came the following day. 12 of the negative mentions of Sanders that Sanders received following his win in Nevada either accused the Vermont senator of being too far left to win or denounced him as socialist. On the February 23rd episode of Newsroom, James Clyburn, the Democrats' House Majority Whip, said, quote, On Super Tuesday, people are concerned about this whole self-proclaimed democratic socialist. Socialism, since I was a student in grade school, was something that engendered a kind of vociferous reaction among people of a negative nature. And socialism is always kind of interesting. In that same 24-hour period, six negative mentions denigrated Sanders' candidacy by tying him to Russia or suggesting that the Russian government prefers him as a candidate. On the February 23rd episode of State of the Union, former Reagan administration official Linda Chavez said, quote, But the problem is, the real winner last night, I believe, was Putin. I mean, we are going to have the most dis- divisive election if Bernie is the nominee. We're going to see two very, very angry people representing two very different extremes of their parties. And I think that helps make America more chaotic. It makes us more divisive. And I think... The one that gets advantaged by that is Russia. Fourteen criticisms fell under the umbrella of nebulous electability knocks. One of those arguments was delivered by Biden himself, who was briefly featured on the 3 p.m. episode of Newsroom. Notably, Sanders was not interviewed by CNN in the aftermath of his Nevada win, nor was he invited to comment on Biden's win in South Carolina. And this piece continues a little bit longer to uh, talk a little bit more about um, the criticisms of Biden in the CNN coverage. 
Next up, a piece from Salon. Uh, this written by Dan Frumkin. Political journalists are eager to kick Bernie Sanders on his way out the door. Bernie Sanders has always made elite political journalists uncomfortable on a deeply personal level. When Sanders rails against the corporate-friendly status quo, it rubs them the wrong way. Accepting the status quo as fundamentally reasonable is a prerequisite for succeeding in modern mainstream political journalism. Anything else makes you a, quote, activist. When Sanders says that accepting corporate money is corrupting, they feel attacked. It's not just that most of their paychecks come from giant corporations. It's that their Washington is awash with corporate money. It funds their spouses and their friends. It buys them drinks. When Sanders speaks in moral absolutes and refuses to compromise on core values, they respond with contempt at his inflexibility because they feel remorse over their own moral flexibility. That Sanders built a major political campaign funded by millions of individual contributions and without lavish fundraisers, that he built a cross-generational, multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse movement that will have lasting impact even if he doesn't win the Democratic nomination, that makes them feel stupid, because they said it couldn't be done. They don't hate him because their corporate masters tell them to. They hate him because he is a walking, breathing, sometimes yelling reproof of the sacrifices they have had to make to succeed in their chosen profession. And then there's his tone. Here's how Bernie Sanders talks. This from a session he held with public health experts on Monday in Detroit. Quote, does anybody in their right mind believe that if you're rich, you should be able to afford a vaccine and save your life, and the poor have got to die? Is that really where we're at in the United States of America? He makes it sound so obvious, and he makes it sound like anyone who disagrees with him is an amoral idiot. But to the extent that they have internalized the arguments for a system in which tens of millions of Americans remain uninsured, that is kind of what political journalists believe. They have come to peace with a system of grotesque inequality and socialism for the rich. They cite the things he says, for example, that accepting corporate money makes you beholden to people who don't want fundamental change, as examples of how off-putting he is and how contemptuous he is of ideologically impure ideas when it's just, you know, the truth. Our elite political journalists take for granted that, a vague, that vaguely defending the status quo does not equate to, quote, having an agenda. But if they took in what Sanders is saying, they would realize that defending the status quo is an agenda, and arguably not a very defensible one at that. So they push him away. They missed a hell of a story. Consider what Bernie Sanders accomplished as cribbed from the nation's endorsement. He, quote, demonstrated that it is possible to wage a competitive campaign for the presidency 
without relying on wealthy donors, corporate funders, or secretive PAC money. He brought about the greatest leftward shift in the political discourse since Franklin Delano Roosevelt's second term, putting not just Medicare for all, but also the Green New Deal, free public higher education, fair taxation, cancellation of student debt, housing as a human right, universal free child care, and an unwavering critique of the billionaire class firmly onto the political agenda. He forged a movement campaign that expands our understanding of what can be achieved in the electoral arena and that invites us to imagine that government of, by, and for the people might actually be possible. But you wouldn't have gotten a particularly good sense of that reading the mainstream media. Will Bunch, the standout national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, wrote last month, quote, Bernie's rise and the everyday people fueling it, from college students to first-time Latinx voters to fed-up warehouse workers and Uber drivers, is a hell of a story. It's just not the story the elite mainstream media, the dominant cable outlets and national newspapers that are largely led by baby boomers, full disclosure, my own generation, and which employ the now-aging veterans of their favorite campaigns as anchors and pundits, wants to tell. Indeed, they seem unfamiliar, even immune, to what's driving Sanders' movement, which Bunch identified this way. The sense of fundamental unfairness in this country, epitomized not just by the unhoused sleeping on car seats in a supposed boomtown, but also by staggering college debt, medical bankruptcies, and a lack of child care, is fueling a political revolution that has put Sanders on a White House trajectory. And, as Bunch points out, those elite journalists have made very little effort to understand any of this, say, by interviewing regular, struggling Americans. Quote, The elites who populate the highest levels of media punditry run the Democratic Party or get paid ridiculous sums to design non-working apps or buy off Instagram meme makers to pretend that Bloomberg is cool still don't have time to talk to everyday voters about why they're so angry. They're instead busy searching for a messiah that will let them go back to their Sunday morning mimosas without worrying about a president who might start a nuclear war with a tweet. They are missing the real revolution. Again. Kyle Pope, the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, concluded the same thing. Quote, once again, the echo chamber of the political reporting class is forcing it to miss a story as it materializes around them. So embedded are they in the status quo, and so determined to defend it, that they are treating the rise of Sanders as a personal affront. And indeed it is. Theirs is precisely the worldview Sanders is raging against. It is the same sneering, dismissive approach to coverage that we saw applied to Trump. In 2016, Washington Post media writer Margaret Sullivan traced the negativity towards Sanders to two sources. Quote, the subtext behind much of the disdain is a partly a deep-seated sentiment that Sanders, if nominated, has little chance of winning the general election. But it's also partly, and more insidiously, that many journalists don't identify easily with Sanders in the same way they do with, say, Elizabeth Warren 
or Beta O'Rourke, or Pete Buttigieg. The first part is arguably more disturbing than the second. It's bad enough for political journalists to allow personal feelings to affect their news judgment. But it's even worse for them to be writing with partisan considerations uppermost in their mind. And this piece continues with a section on equating Sanders and Trump. Uh, before it moves to this last section. Bernie's scolding. It's not just that Sanders' policies are interpreted by many elite journalists as scolding. There's also the actual scolding. In an article for Columbia Journalism Review, Sanders shared a blistering critique of modern political journalists, even going so far as using the words of a legendary newsman against them. Quote, Real journalism is different from the gossip, punditry, and clickbait that dominates today's news. Real journalism, in the words of Joseph Pulitzer, is the painstaking reporting that will, quote, fight for progress and reform, never tolerate injustice or corruption, and always fight demagogues. Pulitzer said that journalism must always, quote, oppose privileged classes and public plunderers, never lack sympathy with the poor, always remain devoted to the public welfare, never be satisfied with merely printing news, always be drastically independent, never be afraid to attack wrong, whether by predatory plutocracy or predatory poverty. Sanders insulted the very people who talk about him on TV. At precisely the moment when we need more reporters covering the health care crisis, the climate emergency, and the economic inequality, we have television pundits paid tens of millions of dollars to pontificate about frivolous political gossip as local news outlets are eviscerated. And he accused the biggest employers of political journalists of corruption. Quote, TV networks that rely on $4.5 billion a year of pharmaceutical ads may be thrilled to sugarcoat our current dysfunctional health care system. But they will never provide a consistently fair hearing for something like Medicare for All, even though polls show that a majority of Americans support such a proposal. Corporate media organizations sponsored by fossil fuel industry ads may gladly provide a platform for guests who insist that our current oligarchic economy is just great. But as studies show, the same outlets often downplay or omit coverage of the climate crisis that those advertisers are helping create. Sanders is right about every bit of that, and most political journalists know it. But they really don't like it to be thrown in their faces. Next up, a piece published in Salon, written by Keith Spencer. There is hard data that shows, quote, Bernie bros are a myth. Mainstream pundits and politicians continue to obsess over the stereotype of the, quote, Bernie bro. A perfervid horde of Bernie Sanders supporters who supposedly stop at nothing to harass his opponents online. 
Elizabeth Warren, Hillary Clinton, and the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens have all helped perpetuate the idea that Sanders supporters are somehow uniquely cruel, despite Sanders' platform and policy proposal being the most humane of all the candidates. The only problem? The evidence that Sanders supporters are uniquely cruel online compared to any other candidate supporters is scant. Much of the discourse around Bernie bros seems to rely on skewed anecdotes that don't stand up to scrutiny. Many Sanders supporters suspect that the stereotype is perpetuated in bad faith to help torpedo his candidacy. A few weeks ago, I penned a story for Salon attempting to qualitatively disprove the Bernie bro myth by pulling from psychological theory and the nature of online behavior. To summarize my conclusions, first, there is a general tendency for online behavior to be negative, known as the online disinhibition effect. But it affects all people equally, not merely Sanders supporters. Second, pundits systematically ignore when other candidate supporters are mean online, perhaps because of the aforementioned established stereotype. In this sense, the Bernie bro is not dissimilar from other political canards, like the quote, welfare queen. Third, Twitter is not a representative sample size of the population, and is so prone to harboring propaganda outfits and bots, such that it is not a reliable way of gauging public opinion. Now to add to this qualitative assessment, there is quantitative evidence too. Reaped from studying hundreds of thousands of interactions online, that reveals that the Bernie bro myth is, myth as well, a myth. Jeff Winchell, a computational social scientist and graduate student at Harvard University, crunched the numbers on tweet data and found that Sanders supporters online behave the same as everyone else. Winchell used what is called sentiment analysis, a technique used both in the digital humanities and in e-commerce to gauge emotional intent from social media data. Quote, Bernie followers act pretty much the same on Twitter as any other follower, Winchell says of the results. There is one key difference that Twitter users and media don't seem to be aware of. Bernie has a lot more Twitter followers than Twitter followers of other Democrats' campaigns, he added, noting that this may be partly what helps perpetuate the myth. And this piece goes on with an interview of uh, the author of that study to dive into the details. Next up, a piece published in Chicago Sun-Times at chicago.suntimes.com. This piece is written by Jesse Jackson. Sunday's Democratic debate between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden made one thing clear. Sanders may not be winning the most states, but he is winning the message battle of direction and priorities. He represents where most Democrats are in their hearts and their heads on the issues. Former Vice President Biden is winning on electability, on the belief that he would be the better candidate to take on President Trump. Pundits paint Biden as a moderate and Sanders as a radical, but Biden clearly understands that Sanders and the movement he has helped to galvanize 
represent the moral center, and slowly, incrementally, if you will, he is moving that way. Early on, Biden embraced Sanders' proposal for a $15 an hour minimum wage. Just before the debate, he announced his support for Elizabeth Warren's plan to reform the bankruptcy bill that Biden helped write and pass, and on a side note, that he denied uh, helping write during that debate. He announced he was moving towards Sanders' position on making public universities tuition-free, although limiting the pledge by imposing a means test on who would be covered. During the debate, he boasted about what, quote, Senator Sanders and I both agree we need. Healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. We both agree we have to deal with student debt. We both agree we have a new Green Deal to deal with the existential threat that faces humanity. We disagree on the detail of how to do it, but we don't disagree on the principle. Delighted to be united? Well, that word detail is covering dramatic differences. Sanders is for Medicare for all. Biden's, quote, public option isn't likely to cover everyone and will leave millions underinsured. Sanders is for making college tuition free and eliminating student debt. Biden doesn't get there. Sanders is serious about a Green New Deal, calling for investing trillions to move rapidly to meet the threat posed by climate change. Biden's plan is much more modest, although he did, for the first time, agree that he was opposed to any new fracking. Biden also announced in the debate for the first time that he would limit deportations of undocumented workers to those who committed felonies. He pledged that he would name a black woman to the Supreme Court, something that Sanders had committed to me 10 days ago. Biden captured the headlines by committing to name a woman on his ticket. Sanders had already pledged to strongly consider an African-American running mate. Biden also agreed with Sanders that the government should ensure that people are made whole on the coronavirus crisis, that testing and treatment should be paid for by the government, and that paychecks should be guaranteed, mortgages supported, etc. Biden is essentially for Medicare for all in the crisis. He did not explain why a family that goes bankrupt when one member gets sick is less of a crisis for that family. Biden, on the defensive for his vote for the Iraq War and for NAFTA and the corporate trade treaties that devastated America's workers, went after Sanders for his early votes against gun control. He also bizarrely tried to indict Sanders for his praise for Cuba's literacy program or his statement of fact that China had been successful in reducing mass poverty. The latter statement Biden argued hilariously would shake our allies in South Korea and Japan that turned what was coming uncomfortably close to red-baiting into just silliness. When asked how he would reach out to engage the voters, particularly young voters and Latinos who have overwhelmingly supported Sanders, Biden whiffed, arguing that he already had a broad coalition that was voting for him in large numbers. But Joe is a smart politician. He knows which way the wind is blowing. He can sense the growing demand for far more fundamental reforms 
than simply a return to the old politics. His incremental embrace of elements of the Sanders-Warren agenda demonstrates that he is not impervious to that demand. That's a good reason for Sanders to keep running and challenging Biden, even if Biden keeps winning more primaries and delegates. Contrary to the alarms of Democratic operatives and deep-pocket donors, embrace of a bold agenda of change is vital to victory against Donald Trump. And next up is a piece published at jacobinmag.com. This one written by Giacomo Gabudi and Lorenzo Zapponi. Joe Biden lied in last night's debate. Italy's public health care is saving it from collapse. Quote, With all due respect for Medicare for All, you have a single-payer system in Italy. It doesn't work there. Such was Joe Biden's reply to Bernie Sanders when the Vermont senator suggested that a universal public health care system is a protection America needs against the coronavirus epidemic. But for Italians closed up in their homes, in a country gripping on to its Servizio Sanitario Nacional, SSN, National Healthcare Service, as a last bastion of protection in these difficult times, Biden's claims were simply unreal. Yes, the advent of coronavirus is a tough test for Italian society, and one imposing hard sacrifices on all of us. For the last week, we've been living in near-total isolation, able to go out only for food shopping, for other urgent reasons, or for those forced to do so, to go to work. Even the Italian cities normally considered most chaotic are now surreally deserted and silent. The economy is giving off troubling signs. There's a tug-of-war between trade unions, businesses, and the government over the possibility of shutting down production to keep workers safe and the social policies needed to soften the crisis's effects. Yet even in such a trying situation, no one would dream of raising question marks over the SSN. Not even the most right-wing forces, not even the Italian equivalents of Donald Trump, are currently prepared to say anything about public health care other than to offer praise and support. Universal public health care is doubtless the reason why Italy hasn't collapsed, explaining why the difficulties we face haven't yet turned into mass tragedy. This virus is lethal for the elderly, the immunosuppressed, and people with prior medical conditions, and also has grave consequences for many young people. In this troubling scenario, the only basis for confidence in the future, the only thing that can lessen our worries, is our ability to count on a constitutional guarantee that every sick person will be treated as best as possible, regardless of their personal finances. Today, more than ever, something that Italians take for a fundamental individual right, a freedom from want worth far more than many former formal liberties that only the richest can truly enjoy, appears for what it really is, a public good, 
Faced with a pandemic, even the health of the wealthiest depends on everyone being promptly treated. This is the reason why Italy, which today has the second most cases of contagion in any country, is still standing. Because every day, citizens can see the number of dead, but also the number who have recovered. Does this mean the Italian healthcare system is perfect? Of course not. It's still a battlefield for the left, something that needs improving. The problem isn't that this system is public and universal, but it, that it should be more so. Sadly, over time, we have allowed the various Italian equivalents of Donald Trump and Joe Biden to make it a bit more like the American system. The system's origins date back to December 1978, when Health Minister Tina Anselmi, former, a former anti-fascist partisan, an MP for the Christian Democrats, and the first woman to become a minister, signed Law 833, which established the Servizio Sanitario Nazionale. The law's first article proclaimed that, quote, through the National Health Care Service, the Republic protects health as a fundamental individual right and collective interest. This finally realized the principles proclaimed in Article 32 of the Constitution, itself a product of the anti-fascist resistance of 1943 to 1945. There was no longer to be a system of insurance schemes linked to people's work, but a universal and public system on the model of Britain's NHS, in which health is a right for each human being and the collective takes charge of guaranteeing it. Even at the outset, this was not a perfect system. There were some conservative choices, such as not counting dental treatment among the free care provided. But this was a gigantic, civilizing step forward. Thanks to this guaranteed health care, among other things, while Italy has a GDP per capita at barely half the U.S. level, Italians' life expectancy is around four years higher. The average Italian lives to over 83 years of age, the fifth highest life expectancy in the world, while the United States languishes in 35th place. Italy is a notoriously divided country. Some commentators steeped in a patronizing Orientalism even consider it a nation, quote, unable to follow the rules. But today, even more than may have been expected, Italy is showing a capacity for social togetherness and collective solidarity while protecting the health care rights of the most vulnerable. It does so on the basis of the essential committed work of doctors, nurses, cleaning staff, and all those working for our national health care service. There are some worries over health care in Italy today, and they owe precisely to the fact that the system has been chipped away over the last 25 years. Indeed, quote, Americanized. In the early 1990s, off the back of Clintonism and the Third Way, various legislative measures introduced quasi-market elements into our public health service, greatly weakening its effectiveness while also regionalizing control over it. This had the effect that only the richest regions, although fortunately enough now the ones where this epidemic has hit hardest first, 
could keep guaranteeing the same standards we had all become used to. This legacy of privatization is weakening our response to coronavirus today. According to the World Health Organization, between 1997 and 2015, the number of intensive care beds in Italy more than halved, from 575 per 100,000 to 275. Faced with such cuts, the private sector has contributed very little, given the difficulties making money off these particular services. From 2009 to 2017, austerity measures taken as a supposed response to the economic crisis meant that Italy lost 8,000 doctors and 13,000 nurses. The worrying thing from an Italian perspective is that the nurse who would have tested us for coronavirus has retired without being replaced or is herself elderly and thus now put at greater risk. And this pressure owes to the policies implemented by the Italian Trumps and Bidens, those who claim we don't really need public health care. The criminal nature of such claims becomes clearer each day, with the war dispatches reporting the fresh numbers of casualties. Faced with this emergency, no one in Italy is prepared to take such a dismissive stance. There is no party, politician, or commentator who doesn't pay tribute, however hypocritically, to our universal health care system. Liberal economists are starting to doubt whether the market is able to provide the masks and respirators we need. The technocrats who once pushed austerity are now calling for European bonds to finance public health care. The government has suddenly started investing in hiring putting the dogmas of, quote, balanced budgets into doubt, and questioning whether it's fair that you get less health provision just because you happen to have born in poorer southern regions. Italy is still standing because, despite the cuts, the system is still functioning. We could invest more money in health care, hopefully all that we need. But the reason we can even think of doing this is because there is an organized healthcare system capable of putting these funds to good use, however under pressure it is now. In last night's debate, Biden compared the coronavirus emergency to a war. We don't much like the metaphor, but we're happy that we're fighting it with a, quote, army that has been prepared over time, rather than rushing to hire private mercenaries when the enemy is already upon us. If we are worried, it is because for too long we have allowed our own Trumps and Bidens to cut staff numbers, facilities, and equipment, bringing us to where we are now. We hope our American friends can learn our lesson and not make the same mistakes. And finally, a piece from Salon.com written by Chris Hedges. There is only one choice in this election. The consolidation of oligarchic power under Donald Trump or the consolidation of oligarchic power under Joe Biden. The oligarchs, with Trump or Biden, will win again. We will lose. The oligarchs made it abundantly clear, should Bernie Sanders miraculously become the Democratic Party nominee, they would join forces with the Republicans to crush him. 
Trump would, if Sanders was a nominee, instantly be shorn by the Democratic Party elites of his demons and his propensity for tyranny. Sanders would be red-baited, as he was viciously Friday in the New York Times, quote, as Bernie Sanders pushed for closer ties, Soviet Union spotted opportunity and turned into a figure of derision and ridicule. The oligarchs preach the sermon of the least worst to us when they attempt to ram a Hillary Clinton or a Biden down our throats, but ignore it for themselves. They prefer Biden over Trump, but they can live with either. Only one thing matters to the oligarchs. It is not democracy. It is not truth. It is not the consent of the governed. It is not income inequality. It is not the surveillance state. It is not endless war. It is not jobs. It is not the climate. It is the primacy of corporate power, which has extinguished our democracy and left most of the working class in misery. And the continued increase and consolidation of their wealth. It is impossible working within the system to shatter the hegemony of oligarchic power or institute meaningful reform. Change, real change, will only come by sustained acts of civil disobedience and mass mobilization, as with the Yellow Vest movement in France and the British-based Extinction Rebellion. The longer we are fooled by the electoral burlesque, the more disempowered we will become. I was on the streets with protesters in Philadelphia, outside the appropriately named Wells Fargo Center, during the 2016 Democratic Convention, when hundreds of Sanders delegates walked out of the hall. Quote, Show me what democracy looks like, they chanted holding Bernie signs above their heads as they poured out of the exits. This is what democracy looks like. Sanders' greatest tactical mistake was not joining them. He bowed before the mighty altar of the corporate state. He had desperately tried to stave off a revolt by his supporters and delegates on the eve of the convention by sending out repeated messages in his name, most of them authored by members of the Clinton campaign, to be respectful not disrupt the nominating process, and support Clinton. Sanders was a dutiful sheepdog, attempting to herd his disgruntled supporters into the embrace of the Clinton campaign. At his moment of apostasy, when he introduced a motion to nominate Clinton, his delegates had left hundreds of convention seats empty. After the 26th convention, Sanders held rallies, the crowds pitifully small compared to what he had drawn when he ran as an insurgent, on Clinton's behalf. He returned to the Senate to loyally line up behind Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, whose power comes from his ability to funnel tens of millions of dollars in corporate and Wall Street money to anointed Democratic candidates. Sanders refused to support the lawsuit brought against the Democratic National Committee for rigging the primaries against him. He endorsed Democratic candidates who espoused the neoliberal economic and political positions he claims to oppose. Sanders, who calls himself an independent, caucused as a Democrat. The Democratic Party determined his assignments in the Senate. Schumer offered to make Sanders the head of the Senate Budget Committee if the Democrats won control of the Senate. 
Sanders became a party apparatchik. Sanders apparently believed that if he was obsequious enough to the Democratic Party elite, they would give him a chance in 2020, a chance they denied him in 2016. Politics, I suspect he would argue, is about compromise and the practical. This is true. But playing politics in a system that is not democratic is about being complicit in the charade. Sanders misread the Democratic Party leadership, swamp creatures of the corporate state. He misread the Democratic Party, which is a corporate mirage. Its base can, at best, select pre-approved candidates and acts as props at rallies and in choreographed party conventions. The Democratic Party voters have zero influence on party politics or party policies. Sanders' naivete and perhaps his lack of political courage drove away his most committed young supporters. These followers have not forgiven him for his betrayal. They chose not to turn out to vote in the numbers he needs in the primaries. They are right. He is wrong. We need to overthrow the system, not placate it. Sanders is wounded. The oligarchs will go in for the kill. They will subject him to the same character assassination aided by the courtiers in the corporate press that was directed at Henry Wallace in 1948 and George McGovern in 1972. The only two progressive presidential candidates who managed to seriously threaten the ruling elites since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The feckless liberal class, easily frightened, is already abandoning Sanders, castigating his supporters with their nauseating self-righteousness, and championing Biden as a political savior. Trump and Biden are repugnant figures doddering into old age with cognitive lapses and no moral cores. Is Trump more dangerous than Biden? Yes. Is Trump more inept and more dishonest? Yes. Is Trump more of a threat to the open society? Yes. Is Biden the solution? No. Biden represents the old neoliberal order. He personifies a betrayal by the Democratic Party, of working men and women that sparked the deep hatred of the ruling elites across the political spectrum. He is a gift to a demagogue and a con artist like Trump, who at least understands that these elites are detested. Biden cannot plausibly offer change. He can only offer more of the same. And most Americans do not want more of the same. The country's largest voting age bloc, the 100 million plus citizens who out of apathy or disgust do not vote, will once again stay home. This demoralization of the electorate is by design. It will, I expect, give Trump another term in office. By voting for Biden, you endorse the humiliation of courageous women such as Anita Hill, who confronted their abusers. You vote for the architects of the endless wars in the Middle East. You vote for the apartheid state in Israel. You vote for wholesale surveillance of the public by government intelligence agencies and the abolition of due process and habeas corpus. 
You vote for austerity programs, including the destruction of welfare and cuts to Social Security. You vote for NAFTA, free trade deals, deindustrialization, and a decline in wages, the loss of hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs, and the offshoring of jobs to underpaid workers who toil in sweatshops in China or Vietnam. You vote for the assault on public education and the transfer of federal funds to for-profit and Christian charter schools. You vote for the doubling of our prison population, the tripling and quadrupling of sentences, and huge expansions of crimes meriting the death penalty. You vote for militarized police who gun down poor people of color with impunity. You vote against the Green New Deal and immigration reform. You vote for limiting a woman's right to abortion and reproductive rights. You vote for a segregated public school system in which the wealthy receive educational opportunities and poor people of color are denied a chance. You vote for punitive levels of student debt and the inability to free yourself of debt obligations through bankruptcy. You vote for deregulating the banking industry and the abolition of Glass-Steagall. You vote for the for-profit insurance in pharmaceutical corporations and against universal health care. You vote for bloated defense budgets. You vote for the use of unlimited oligarchic and corporate money to buy our elections. You vote for a politician who, during his time in the Senate, abjectly served the interests of MBNA, the largest independent credit card company headquartered in Delaware, which also employed Biden's son, Hunter. There are no substantial political differences between the Democrats and Republicans. We only have the illusion of participatory democracy. The Democrats and their liberal apologists adopt tolerant positions on issues regarding race, religion, immigration, women's rights, and sexual identity, and pretend this is politics. The right wing uses those on the margins of society as scapegoats. The culture wars mask the reality. Both parties are full partners in the reconfiguration of American society into a form of neo-feudalism. It only depends on how you want it dressed up. Quote, By fostering an illusion among the powerless classes that they can make their interests a priority, the Democratic Party, quote, pacifies and thereby defines the style of an opposition party in an inverted totalitarian system, political philosopher Sheldon Wolin writes. The Democrats will once again offer up a least worst alternative while in fact doing little or nothing to thwart the march toward corporate totalitarianism. What the public wants and deserves will again be ignored for what the corporate lobbyists demand. If we do not respond soon to the social and economic catastrophe that has been visited upon most of the population, we will be unable to thwart the rise of corporate tyranny and a Christian fascism. We need to reintegrate those who have been pushed aside back into the society, to heal the ruptured social bonds, to give workers dignity, empowerment, and protection. We need a universal health care system, especially as we barrel toward a global pandemic. 
We need programs that provide employment with sustainable wages, job protection, and pensions. We need quality public education for all Americans. We need to rebuild our infrastructure and end the squandering of our resources on war. We need to halt corporate pillage and regulate Wall Street and corporations. We need to respond with radical and immediate measures to curb carbon emissions and save ourselves from ecocide and extinction. We don't need a Punch and Judy show between Trump and Biden. But that, along with corporate tyranny, is what we seemed fated to get. Unless we take to the streets and tear the house down. And that'll wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. Once again, you can find all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can also watch and listen to me record Bernie 2020 live on Twitch. That is at twitch.tv slash unrelated things. Here is Dick Gowen with the song Revolution. Thanks for listening. I come like a comet newborn, like the sun that arises at morning. I come like the furious tempest that follows the thunderclouds' warning. I come like the fiery lava from cloud-covered mountains volcanic. I come like a storm from the north that the oceans awake to in I come because tyranny planted my seed in the hot desert sand. I come because masters have kindled my fury with every command. I come because man cannot murder the life-giving seed in his veins. I come because liberty cannot forever be fettered by chains. I come because tyrants imagine that mankind is only the throne. I come because peace has been nourished by bullets and cannons alone. I come because one world is two and we face one another with rage. I come because gods have been posted to keep out the hope of the age. From earliest times the oppressed have awaked me and called me to lead them. I guided them out of enslavement and brought them to high roads of freedom. I marched at the head of their legions and hailed the new world at its birth. And now I shall march with the peoples until the unfetter the earth. And you, are your sanctified money bags, bandits anointed and crowned. Your counterfeit towers of justice and ethics will crash to the ground. I send my good sword to your hearts that have drained the world's blood in their lust. And smash all your crowns and your scepters and trample them into the dust. I'll rip off your rich purple garments and tear them to rags and to shreds. And never again will their glitter be able to turn people's heads. At last your cold world will be robbed of its proud to the critical glow. For we shall dissolve it as surely as sunlight dissolves the deep souls. I'll break down your cobweb morality 
shatter the old chain of lines and catch all your black-footed preachers and choke them as though they were flies. I'll put a quick end to your heavens, your gods that are deaf to all prayers. I'll scatter your futile old spirits and clean up the earth and the air. And all you may choke me and shoot me and hang me, your toil is in vain. No dungeon, no gallows can scare me, nor will I be frightened by pain. Each time I'll rise from the earth and break through all your weapons of doom until you are finished forever, until you are dust in the tomb.